Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Get to Know Podcast. We're now on episode five, and we have our first ever guest on board. We have Mr. Paul Sample, formerly from the Muslim Mentors, who now has his own project, along with James, the PT project. And today we're going to be going through post-show, post-diaphase, post-prep, and the the wave of emotions and the turbulence that ensues. So um, really looking forward to getting into this, obviously off the back of our previous one, talking about contest prep itself. So Paul has actually specialised in this, uh, both from personal experience and has actually gone written a fantastic book, which I'll probably reference a few times throughout this. Um, but I won't take up too much here. Let Paul introduce himself. Does that have missed? No, I think that's pretty good. I, I didn't know I was the first guest on here. So thanks very much for, for yeah. having me on as the first one. I now feel very privileged. So uh, no, I think you, you summed that up pretty nicely. I run a thing called the PT Project. But you'll discover all those bits and pieces out as we waffle through this chat. That's probably more important than what I do with the rest of my time. <laughs> yeah, fair. So um, Paul has a lot of like, personal experience as well, going through a lot of stuff here. And as I said, I will reference this book a lot, but it is a lot to do with kind of like the anxiety and the food focus that comes off the back of prep and like the body dysmorphic issues that arise. Um, so we're pretty much just going to go through that and kind of just hash out some of the things that people like go through because mm. I don't think a lot of people are really aware of it and they typically just associate like eating pathologies with a certain kind of individual, mm. like someone who's probably grown up with anorexia, bulimia and so on. But a lot of these things can really come down to nurture and having gone through those experiences of extensive dieting phases themselves so yeah um what is the go ahead Alex I think especially like there's a stigma attached to always looking like you're good especially in the bodybuilding industry is like there's no there's nothing wrong prep is a breeze now reverse dieting and everything's fine but like (laughs) behind closed doors like you know there's always that it's hard. Like it's probably one of the, the hardest phases um, to kind of like reverse out of and reverse with control. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously as, as we're about to divulge, control is uh, the, the, the stickler. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. And like, it's, it's like we talked about in like, I think maybe our first episode, but like social media is always going to be like your highlight reel. Like mm-hmm. not many people will self-expose their eating pathologies, any issues that they have, binge eating disorder. Like it's very fucking rare to see that. So it's, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. So I think even just having this conversation, bringing that awareness towards and like, not to say, oh, if you're going to do a prep, you're going to have an eating disorder. <laughs> like yeah. that's not the case, but there are things that we can do. And also like a level of discomfort that we probably should expect and not see that as like a doom and gloom scenario, but it's, it's something that we can definitely work through. And we're going to go through like little steps and processes that kind of um, attenuate that, that issue itself. So, um, how do we kick this off with a question? I, I was just enjoying the, uh, the idea as well within there that social media is a highlight reel and people don't show you the other sides of things. I was like, imagine if they did though. Like you just, someone took you into the toilet while they made themselves sick or just <laughs> taking a shit after all their laxatives. I mean, like that's a weird social media page. Like I, in, <laughs> you'd be like watching a car crash. You'd be like, what are they doing? Do you remember... I'm going to bring up Ross Dickerson because God bless that man. I don't know what's happening in his life or, or, or any of those. I haven't, I haven't followed him in years. Or I'll tell you, he's a better, here's a better example. Callum Von Moja. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Where you go, 
Oh, now I've, I, God only knows. I have no idea what's going on with, with his life and bits and pieces, but it, it seems interesting. Um, and so we can, we can only speculate for stuff, but yeah, like imagine that someone didn't, they did the exact opposite of the highlight reel and they just put up all of the worst moments. That's just as bad. <laughs> You'd be like, I, yeah, they're just crying all the time. Like this is, this is, this is not what I came onto my social media to escape from. So I think we're, we're almost trying to find this balance of reality within social media. And sometimes we see the pendulum, I think, swing a bit far. And someone, when they've gone through their own troubles, end up just talking about their troubles. And sometimes we get this sort of very skewed version of events that is like, you're destined to be fucked if, <laughs> if you engage in this. And I'm like, well, that's not strictly true. There's, um, there's a good line, and I can't remember the lady who said this so i'm gonna to have to apologize for not remembering who said it or where i precisely got it from it was someone over on lift the bar but she had a line that was speak from the scar not the wound mm-hmm. what she's getting at is okay you're gonna go through some stuff and it's gonna leave a mark a scar is not plain tissue that nothing happened to there is a scar there but it's healed as much as it's maybe going to heal a wound is still this open, seeping cesspit of things that are going terribly. And often if we're giving advice about how to deal with something while we ourselves are in the midst of it, we can get this like flip floppy, weird kind of thing. That when we're, And I'm sure we've all seen people understandably struggling themselves and trying to share and be honest and open with that. And that is kind of admirable. But sometimes you get this flip flop that's just going like, man, this, this person is a yo-yo. And I think that's the issue with speaking from the wound, maybe not the scar. It's like this really subjective and emotionally driven input where it's like you haven't really had as much time to kind of collate your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've definitely seen that a lot. There's a couple Irish ex-bikini girls, but be even tentative to call them like a bikini girl because they may have done one show, really strong on the back end of it. And now they just like, they're nearly on a mission to tarnish the industry, which like... Look, obviously you're trying to bring a little bit more awareness to it, but it's it's not to say everyone's going to go through that. And it's not to say that you couldn't have done better or maybe they just didn't. Look, again, like we don't know what we don't know. So they just didn't have the awareness that was going to be this difficult. They couldn't anticipate that. Again, maybe the quality or the communication with the coach wasn't there. But there's definitely we're definitely seeing that shift a lot now. I definitely think that things are improving with the likes of yourself and, and others in the industry who bring that kind of awareness to the subject. Um, but yeah, with regards to kind of like reversing out of it, reversing out of show, the one thing that really worked for me was that disconnect with the visually like associating what you should look like and getting ready for a show, looking absolutely fucking peeled to going and putting weight on quite quickly because your body is primed to absorb absolutely fucking everything you throw at it. And then just making that disconnect as quickly as you can make that disconnect between what I should look like, the weight gain, and then using that food in order to utilize performance in the gym and actually start getting yourself back into a routine and a structure. That's, that's what I see that works the best, especially for myself. So, I mean, I think that leads into an interesting one of going, and I I did a post on this a while ago. Do you love bodybuilding or Mm. just body revealing? (laughs) Because they're slightly different things, but one of the biggest problems when people shift out of the end of the show is, you know, you've spent months working towards this date 
And so you've been looking in the mirror, checking that you're getting leaner, getting praise for this, feeling good about that, and yada, yada, yada. Your whole life has been built to this, well, I mean, not your whole life, but a large chunk of your at least recent life has been built to this particular moment. And then Dan John has a wonderful line that he says, after the peak comes the cliff. And sometimes we, we climb and we climb and we climb and we're like, ah, shit, we just fall off the other side. It's not like a casual hike back down the mountain. It's just a plummet. And we're trying to go, okay, <laughs> it'd be great if we didn't plummet off the other side. So how do we start to navigate our way back down? You can't live in the death zone of Everest. We're going to have to come down. You can't stay peeled, <laughs> right? Yeah. You can try, but you're going to suffer a crap load by trying and you're still going to fail. So this is the bit of acceptance that has to happen. But that's really hard because you only take this whole thing up if you think that looking peeled and muscular is awesome, mm. right? If you didn't think that was really cool, you wouldn't do it. So the very fact that you have aimed at this outcome tells us that you value it. And now suddenly after peaking, getting to the top of that mountain, you're not having to turn around and walk away from the thing that you really like, which is like, hang on, wait, what? <laughs> you're like, that's, that's a bit of a head fuck because it's going in the wrong direction as far as at least part of you is concerned. I think what Alex was, was nicely getting towards in that is that you have to, and this is way easier said than done, you have to pivot in your mind the goal you're aimed at. Mm. And it has to move away from this is all about being peeled because you, you can't stay there. You will die <laughs> uh, towards something else. But there's still a huge challenge. Just because you've said to yourself that you're going to aim at this other target doesn't mean all of your internal mind and everything that makes you up is in agreement with you, right? Like you might decide, okay, we're going to gain weight. We're going to aim at building some tissue now, right? And actually putting these calories to use, getting bigger, improving, whatever it is that we're trying to do. But as you start doing that, these little voices are definitely going to come out of the woodwork and be like, you look embarrassingly fat. Right? <laughs> <laughs> People they're judging you. They're going to think, oh my God, does he even lift anymore? They're going to think a whole... <laughs> now, by the way, that's all happening. Here's one of the weird ones as well. On the way towards a certain point and on the way back, right? Let's say you, you started dieting, you're 10 kilos down or whatever, right? You know, you're not where you need to be yet. You look in the mirror and you're kind of enjoying it. It feels good, right? You're kind of like, all right, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but we're getting there. I'm looking good. This is great. You then get there and you come back. And let's say you're now at the exact same point. If we put photos next to each other of six weeks out and six weeks after and you looked identical, let's say, <laughs> In the internal state on the way there is, this is good. This is great. We're going, you might have some doubts and be like, oh, I wonder if I'll be good, right? That's normal. But the general experience is relatively positive as you're moving towards this thing that you're trying to achieve. And then on the opposite side, as you come out, it's the same visual, but the experience of that is not the same pleasant experience. It's usually, oh my fucking God, <laughs> what's happening? I hate life. And it gives us a real interesting insight into perspective that it, how you see yourself is not just contingent on what you look like because you look the same in both of those images that we just decided to imagine in our head there. But the internal experience of how we see that image is quite different based on sort of where we've been and, and where we're going. And I think that's that big bit again for, for Alex there of instead of just seeing yourself moving away from the thing that you value, 
which is just shit because no one likes moving away from the thing they value. That's the going in the wrong direction. You have to see yourself moving towards something else you value. Otherwise, it's just a purely negative experience. And that's going to suck more than it needs to. At least if you're moving towards something positive at the same time, then in those moments that, of course, are still going to happen where you're like, I feel fat. (laughs) At least there's a benefit that's coming along with that. And actually, over time, as you start to process it and go through the right steps, that does ease off and it won't feel the shit as it always did through that particular process. Yeah. And that's a really important point that you mentioned in terms of like, it's still going to be discomforting. Like there's still going to be some inevitable level of pain because of the fact that like you're seeing that supposedly negative outcome in terms of your physique. And we can't just like, it's not, as you said, like it's a lot easier said than done. We can't just say, Oh, well, I don't value that anymore. Because if you didn't value how your body looked, you wouldn't have done the prep in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> so we really got to couple those things and balance, but again, manage expectations and know that like it will be uncomfortable at stages anyway. So I suppose under that framework, like what are the things that we are now associating as positive that are going in the opposite direction of like, low body fat because we know at the end of prep for the vast majority if not all people would be surprised if people manage to land stage condition with their libido intact with a very functioning relationship with (laughs) with all these other positive things like right now it's time to address those things and, and kind of bring that focus back to it so i suppose like objectively how do we kind of set this up with clients in terms of like setting those targets and those those perspective goals because that's all it is it's just a shift in perspective towards other things that you value not that you don't value being lean yeah it's the the first step is as coaches let's recognize that it's difficult because in part that question implies that i can make someone else value something (laughs) right and we're like alex you need to be into trains, my friend. And if I just say the right words to you, you're going to be real into trains. All right. <laughs> Suddenly he's into trains now. And I'm like, oh. yeah. <laughs> but it's, we, our job, at least the way I kind of see it is to try and help people understand the things that they kind of do already value and maybe have forgotten because prep is such a, a, a mono focused thing. It sort of takes all your attention and, almost all your effort and that's the thing that you look at and as Tara said there of going all right well your relationship's probably going to suffer a little bit because you're going to be a selfish grumpy moody asshole Uh, and that doesn't give you a free license to do that you should still try and address it while it's happening Um, I remember a a great talk probably about 2014 I went to of Eric Helms's uh, and a section in his talk was called balance and the bodybuilder and he spoke about this exact topic and you know you chose to do this no, there's, there's no one gun to head being like, if you don't get shredded, I'm going to murder your family. Like that's never happened. And if it has, it's weird. And I'm <laughs> curious as to who that person is. So you're choosing to do this, which means you don't get free reign to be a complete cock. Right. So, but inevitably, even if you're trying to address that, you recognize that you're trying your best. You're still going to be a bit more irritable. You're still going to not have the energy. You're still going to be saying no to social occasions. You're going to be doing all that stuff. And so that's the nature of the beast. When you come out the other side, though, if these people mean something to you, (laughs) you owe it to them to try and make some of that stuff up and to repair some of those relationships. And that can be really huge because it it starts at least to shift your attention outside of you. Mm -hmm. If you're if one of the issues with some of this stuff is your attention is so solely focused on yourself Mm -hmm. that there's no space for other things. So some of the solutions to this is how do we 
take some of that attention that is me, 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 and go, okay, I recognize that's not healthy. I sound like a cop, right? Let's, let's start shifting this onto my partner, my friends, my family, my kind of whatever. That doesn't mean you won't still have those voices going, oh, but this meal's got loads of calories in it, right? Or whatever is particularly kind of going on. You're going to have those moments, but you, you're trying to look at them through the lens of what you gain, not what you lose again. So this is, I love this person and I've, <laughs> she has been very supportive of me, right? Yeah, exactly. And they've been really supportive of me during this process. And we haven't been able to do half the fun things that they want to do and that they like to spend their time doing as well. So, right. I owe them. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's go for dinner. Let's go and, you know, watch a show. Let's go to sporting events, whatever it is that you guys kind of like doing. Every human being needs other people. You know, there's truth to the, the statement that no man is an island. And so one of the big ones for people is other people. That's one of the, the first uh, places you can start. The other ones then that you can try and help your clients see. So first off, you can have that conversation with them a little bit of going, right, let's lay that out. Do, and rather than telling them, often we're asking them, right? Again, I'm <laughs> sure of my amazing ability to make Alex like trains, right? Most of this is actually about, dude, what are you into? What have you missed as a result of kind of doing this? Like, and some people will struggle to come up with answers to this. It can be so um, much a part of their life that they don't have any hobbies left. (laughs) They don't have anything else. And that's going to be difficult because again, you go, well, then we're not moving towards anything. We're just moving away from something. Mm -hmm. So if that is the case, you can ask them a little bit more about, okay, what did you like as a kid? Right. I don't know a five-year-old who was super into bodybuilding, right? Like that happens later. So that, you know, you had some interests when you were younger. So it was that, you know, music, was it reading a particular thing? Was it you know, pick whatever? I mean, what were you guys into? I was a gamer. And a yeah. skater. <laughs> <laughs> a body, but to be fair, when I first started with Callum, I was still into skating. Yeah. And then I kept falling so much that I started like getting like injuries to my wrist. And the more right. I into bodybuilding and the heavier the weights, I was like, maybe this isn't a good idea. <laughs> like, so yeah, skateboarding is a, is out, maybe gaming, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. similar. I actually I joined the gym when I, I was diagnosed with osteoarthritis in my left knee when I was 14. So I had surgery when I was 15, got to the gym, told to strengthen it up to play football uh, and yeah. never go back to football. So we're probably two bad examples, but let, let's take that with a pinch of salt. <laughs> um, because yeah, like music as well. You know what I mean? I actually, I went to the bottom of the base. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I, I know that that's something that like, this wasn't even during prep because I know like fucking prep spends do get out of hand. <laughs> that's another topic. But um, <laughs> yeah, like just understanding that you actually need some downtime. Like yes, bodybuilding is technically a 24 hour thing. Like your meals are training, your sleep, et cetera. But like you also need to have some downtime and, and some things that you enjoy. And I definitely wasn't a very studious kid, but like I fucking love reading now. So it's like right now, I already noticed probably like last, last week. So I finished prep about nearly a month ago. And in the last like week or two, it's like, okay, now when I'm bored, I'm actually like picking up a book. Like I actually have the energy to read now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, recognizing those little positive things that like really allow you to stay on track with this long term yep and the little like hobbies that you have yeah and and we can all neglect them you you know they can vary over time gaming is a one that you can pretty much do whenever and wherever one of the things i actually really like about gaming as opposed to often people get stuck in their own head which is a common common issue 
things like reading or watching a show, the issue you've got is you're passively observing, which means you can be sat there and not be there, <laughs> right? We, we, I'm sure we've all experienced that thing of we're in a room, yang in the room. Your brain is elsewhere worrying about whatever it kind of worries about. It's actually hard to do that in activities that involve you more. And gaming, if you're gaming and you're not there, your character stops moving and doing anything, <laughs> right? Which means it's going to get shot or you're going to concede a goal or it depends what you want to kind of play or what games you're into. So gaming can be quite useful in that it's a bit more active. Mm-hmm. Certain sports can be a bit more like that because again, if I stop, so I used to play rugby. If I stop paying attention, I'm not present. I'm going to get murdered, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, okay, that's, that's, so I need to pay attention. Be present. Okay. Music is kind of a bit of a mix depending on what you're playing and how into it you are in a moment i actually find yeah but sometimes you can lose yourself in music and you know you've you sort of lost track of time that's a good sign uh within things but you can and if you're unsure because you don't have any in you, or not none hopefully but if even if you don't have any that you can think of if you're listening to this you know explore what you're interested in as a kid or does anything announce you to you now that that seems cool and there's got to be something <laughs> right no i almost no one is at that point of complete despair where they think nothing is cool right and if you're not sure about that who do you admire what is it you admire in other people and what they're doing or what they've achieved or that looks fun just get in touch with that slightly more childlike side of yourself that is actually excited by certain things and, and then go and do it worst case you spend a few weeks and go nah okay <laughs> you've got a whole life like you've got plenty of time to explore some of these bits and pieces yeah and something we could do probably like something that is done very passively but we could actually take active inspiration from is like next time you jump on instagram and you like something just ask like why did you like it like what of that actually and then you can just you know you can try to replicate that i'm not saying you just have to go and fucking like oh he's in bali i'm gonna go to bali you know something with like a lower entry point no no that's what you have to do just go, you follow people that seem like they're in cool places. Remortgage the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so just that shift of perspective, finding other things that will positively like impact you um, and understanding like, yeah, there's going to be some internal conflict along the way. And a lot of that is going to be driven. So we're going to bring it back to your book Um and I suppose just like from an evolutionary standpoint, it's like the whole theme of negativity bias, like mm-hmm. lots of version theory. So do you want to briefly walk us through how that's implicated? He's definitely read the book. Right. So Kahneman and, and Tversky back in the 70s came up with this thing that's called loss aversion theory. And this is this idea that we are more motivated to avoid losing something than to gain something of equivalent value. So, you know. While it feels great to be given a grand, it feels worse to lose a grand, (laughs) right? And that's the same idea that we had when we said, when you're moving towards the value being treaded, you're like six weeks out, you're like, this is all feeling good. I'm not there yet, but it's feeling good. We come back the other way. We're at the same point, same visual, but we're moving away. This is the loss and we're more motivated to avoid that. And that's why it feels worse. And it seems as though, and there's quite a bit of research on this, that it's like almost a two to one ratio. Like it feels doubly as shit as the positive emotion that you got from it, right? So we have this bigger thing. And from that evolutionary perspective, it makes a bit of sense that we are motivated to avoid threats to a high degree, 
right? Because mm-hmm. if there's, you know, we're, we're evolving somewhere on the savannah we're some kind of like monkey human thing, but not quite a human yet. And there's some rustling in the grass. Well, odds are it's just a bit of wind, right? The wind is just rustling the grass around. But there's a chance that shit's a lion and your ass is about to get eaten. So on the off chance, even though it's a small chance that it's a lion, your ass should get out of dodge. And the ancestors that we have that were super chill about threats probably got eaten more frequently, which means those genes didn't get passed on as regularly. And so you can make an argument that the ancestors who survived must have been threat aware in order to survive. Now, they can't have been completely crippled by threats because otherwise they'd never have gone out, got food and done anything else. So there's a ratio and there's a balance between these things. But we clearly have this evolutionary inbuilt sense of looking for threat. Now, threat in an old fashioned kind of sense, we can think of as lions and all that stuff. But that's not the only thing that can be threatened. Like our sense of identity can be threatened. And this is one of the big ones for bodybuilding is that often our identity is built up with it. And so when we start moving away from being shredded, that's not just moving away from being shredded. That's moving away from everything we define ourselves as, Mm. which means it's a threat to your entire being as far as you're concerned. So that magnitude of emotion is fucking massive and shit. And so we we have this kind of, that's what's going on a little bit in, in terms of what's happening there. It's also when we have values. So, let's take we'll take maybe a slight detour through this idea a value sets the emotional framework that your body then works around so and we've got really obviously things right why do we experience the sensation of hunger well it's because if you don't eat you will die so it'd be good if you were motivated to eat right and the way that you're motivated to eat is by a sensation and we call that sensation hunger right so you start getting hungry Ooh, i need to eat or if i'm in prep I'm going to ignore that, right? <laughs> and just start thinking about food. And actually, as, as you get leaner and leaner, the reason that you're thinking about food is because you're starving, right? You are intentionally getting leaner and leaner. And it would be weird. It would be dumb for an organism as it gradually starves to death to not think about food more. It's trying to get your attention so that you eat, so that you don't die, right? So we get this, this impact. Then here's the other cool part of this feature. So as you move further, so we can think of this as the value is I have to eat in order to live, right? And I need a certain amount of body fat actually to do that as well. And as I move further and further away from that need being met, the internal sense of hunger and food focus starts building and building as I move further away because it wants me to go and eat and solve that problem. So the size of the hunger gets worse over prep gradually. And then in the end, you're a zombie, right? And and the the food focus gradually increases until you're basically just all of your dreams are about food. You don't have other dreams at this point. It's just, I dreamt about cake last night. It was wonderful. I could smell it, right? You get this kind of thing that is monopolizing your attention. And then what happens when you eat something? Nothing is as delicious as that first bunch of junk (laughs) that you eat post-show. It's fucking wonderful. And the reason it's wonderful is because you moved away from the value. So then when you move back towards it, your body like hyper reinforces that by going, this is the best thing you've ever had ever do more of it. But actually, as you, as you do more of it, the the size of that reaction, the size of that emotional response decreases. It's actually not as good with the next meal and the next meal and the next meal There's diminishing returns that come on that. And that's not just true of hunger. That's, you know, if you're laying on your bed, and you've been laying on your bed all day, 
don't feel that great. But if you've been out on your feet and you've done 40,000 steps and you're knackered and you come in and collapse onto your bed, ooh, that feels good, mm. right? They're the same thing, but they're not the same thing because it depends on our relationship to our needs being met. Mm. So we've got hunger, we've got sleep, we've got these kind of obvious bits, but we've also got these other things like our sense of identity and who we are. And human beings are motivated by a weird array of shit that most other animals are. Like we're motivated by the sense of like nationalism, right? By the idea that we have countries and we will die for our country and we will die for ideals like freedom and democracy or not, right? Or whatever it is that we're motivated by. Like that's almost the definition of motivation. Are you willing to die for it? Yeah, cool. Right. Hard to say that person wasn't motivated by that particular thing. I moved towards it. And your emotions are there to sort of move you towards or away from things. And so once we, we get lean and then we start moving away from it, the size of that emotional response is related directly to the very fact that we wanted to get lean in the first place, that we valued it, that it was part of how we saw ourselves. And if we didn't see ourselves in that manner, we wouldn't have aimed at it in the first place, right? So you've got this I th- almost inescapable problem of, by definition, people who want to compete hypervalue their physique. Hmm. And the fact that they hypervalue their physique means that when they move away from it, it hurts them more than it would for anyone else. And I don't see a way around that. Other, and so then you get these two things. You get people who decide it caused them so much emotional distress that this must be avoided and everyone must be warned, sound the alarms, because surely everyone must suffer to the same degree that they suffered, which is the mistake, right? Or people learn to deal with it. And actually, sometimes they then go, okay, I know how to navigate those periods. I know how to navigate my headspace. And I'm okay with that. And I can, I can do that multiple times. So I actually think the people at biggest risk of struggling are those going through their first few shows. Mm-hmm. Because actually, if you make it to like a second season, because you could do like eight shows in one year, and then that's really not doing, you, you haven't had gaps, right? That's just one fucking continual event, effectively. Right? But let's assume that there was a reasonable space between these things. If you've made it through a few of these, you kind of know how to navigate it because otherwise you wouldn't keep going back, most likely. It's those people who are first starting out because you don't know what you don't know. How are you supposed to? If you've never been really lean before, you're not thinking about after being really lean because you haven't even got to lean yet. Right. (laughs) You're like, let's not get carried away. I need to get there first. Right. No one starts thinking about the thing past the thing the first time they aim at the thing. And so we've got that bit of an inescapable problem, I, I think. And it is difficult. It helps to value other things. It helps to know that this stuff is coming. Um, there, there's lots of stuff that you can do, but a, a lot of it is then going to be built on having a conversation with your client and trying to see, okay, how, where are they? How do they see themselves and see the world? How distressed are they by this stuff? And what specifically is going on for them so that we can then specifically put some strategies in place to help them? Hmm. I think the strategy that best worked for me post-show, exactly as you said, Paul, it's like the more you do something, the less of a reward you get. I had to eat my way out of... (laughs) (laughs) I had to eat my way out. Literally, I could not stop eating. Like, I was an endless pit. And I just said to Callum, I I can't stop. I just can't stop, Callum. And he was like, all right, I'll just bump your calories up to 5,000. So I'd gone from, like... Two and a half, straight to 5,000. Yeah. 5,000 was not enough. I doubled it. And I was like, 10,000. I was going for 10,000 for about two weeks. And I was like, 
I just can't eat anymore. <laughs> and then, uh, obviously, I didn't tell Callum I was doing 10,000 calories a day, but, you know. Now, it, now uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I'm just going to keep eating. I'm going to keep eating. And then I just got bored of eating. I was like, okay, I've had enough now. Back to 5K. And then I was like, yeah, this is good. Now I've got some element of control on this. It is, we're bodybuilders. We need to have an element of control. <laughs> I think that's where the, 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 the sticky bit is, you know, is where we feel like we've got the control out of our hands Mm. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? And exactly as you say, when you've never done it before, how do you know what that feels? Because I know, for, especially for myself, when I went through my first show, I was like, this is great. And then I had to hold condition for the next show. And I was like, this is shit. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like, you've got these peaks and troughs. And my first show, the amount of post-show stuff that I was eating and everything else. And then second, third, et cetera, show that post-show treat just got a little, a little less you know exciting you know and you were like actually it's probably not the best idea you know what I mean and it, it's um getting those mechanisms and thinking about it and processing it and finding out what works best for you if that makes sense yeah so like it is that massive surge and like endorphins dopamine that you get from that initial post-show and then as it just gradually decreases you realize like nothing's going to taste as good or as satisfying or as rewarding as that initial one. So mm-hmm. like what else is satisfying, rewarding and so on. And like, that's what we talked about earlier. It's more than likely going to be like the social approval, not social approval, the social interaction with people. Like that's, that's a massive thing that you probably have missed out on. And I was pretty tactical with this, like in my post show, just gone. It's like my main crux, the main thing that I wanted to do was to go out with my girlfriend with a group of mates and go get food there so that the focus wasn't on just the food you know what I mean because you could mm-hmm. easily sit at home and like scuff away fucking four cheese bagels and <laughs> ice cream and shit like is yeah. that going to feel as good as going out for a single meal with the people that you value you enjoy and then from there getting back on track you know what I mean it's not it's not a matter of then trying to compensate and again, we're going to notice every gram of fat that's been put on and it's going to be more detrimental and have more of a negative impact on us than for someone who's overweight and puts on like half a pound. <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't notice that. Whereas we do, we have that hyperacuity because it is something that we value so much. So we just need to, again, much easier said than done, but bring that focus towards the other things in life that you value. And if you don't know what they are, like that's, that's step number one. Like, yeah. find, out, find out what else actually interests you. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like you, you, you mentioned leveraging uh, social things in order to kind of help through that because <laughs> it is a rare human being who goes out to dinner and orders four cheesecakes. But it is not a rare <laughs> human being. <laughs> yeah, it is not a rare human being who at home by themselves, when no one else is watching, will eat four cheesecakes, right? Like the things that we will do when there is no one else around are quite amplified <laughs> versus what we'll do when other people are around. And you know, people often denigrate the negative effects of peer pressure or social expectation, etc. And that's fine. There are plenty of things to go, oh my God, that has this negative impact on me. But it's not purely negative. There are not no plus sides <laughs> to other people being around. Otherwise, you'd hate all people. And you don't hate all people. You actually really like people. Well, yeah, you, yeah, exactly. You, you, you like at least some people. So you can leverage that to go, right, in these initial ones, when I'm definitely, I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat more. I am. I know I am. Let's go and do it with some friends. Because that might hold me back a little bit. Now, that won't, that, that is not a given that that is going to be enough because there's nothing stopping you having that meal and then going home and eating like a secret squirrel too, right? You can do both of those particular things. They're not like, 
ah, if I go out and eat with my friends, that'll definitely stop me eating at home in secret. It's like, no, no maybe. The answer is maybe. <laughs> uh, and so it's worth trying and placing that in there. It's a sensible enough strategy to do. And it's also just nice to do post-show anyway, to catch up and spend time with kind of loved ones, right? That's, that's going to be a pretty useful thing to do. I had another point and now I can't remember what it was. So that's good. Just keep talking. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> as we move on, like understanding and not catastrophizing about this, but every time you perform one of those binge eating behaviors, we have helps a lot. So yes. we have this phenomenon of how your brain, your neural circuitry works. As you go through and do things, you ingrain that pattern, you ingrain that behavior. So Hemsaw is pretty much what neurons are fired to get a word together. So the more you kind of do those binge eating uh, behaviors, it's the more it's kind of ingrained and it becomes nearly reflexive. So that's why it's kind of like, you don't want to sit back and count and say, oh no, I've done it this many times, which means it's going to take X amount of time to attenuate because we, we can't really quantify that shit. You know what I mean? But it's like understanding you can't just say okay next time it'll be okay you know what i mean you have to try and find out what the issue is find potential trends in like the regularity of or the, the circumstances under which that you overeat like we said it's more than likely going to be at home by yourself and then trying to reverse engineer that and try to say right how can we kind of mitigate those and once you undergo like a few days a few weeks of that puzzle or just avoiding the binge eat behavior you're also ingraining normalized food behaviors yeah so there's there's going to be a bunch in that right so heb's law as as we said there is neurons that fire together wire together right and normally that's thought of in the lens of skill acquisition so if i learn to juggle or kick a ball or do whatever I do this pattern, a bunch of neural circuitry goes, oh, that fires, then that fires, then that fires. They made a pattern. They sort of reinforce each other. And gradually we put this wiring down that allows us to do things like walk, talk, chew, think, all the things that we do as human beings, right? So Hebb's law is the reinforcement of neural patterns that fire together or very close to each other. And that happens all the time, forever and for always, like whatever you're doing. And that means that it's also at play in your thought patterns, and some of your behavioral patterns. And this is the bit where Hebb's law has a helpful side and an unhelpful side. You can reinforce a bunch of stuff that keeps your attention on the negative and the things that you're doing poorly or the fact that you're feeling fatter or whatever it is that you're struggling with and live in that, that space that no one else gets to see that is your headspace. And the more you allow yourself to keep thinking those thoughts and stay locked in that perception and that type of attention the more frequently those thoughts start happening. And the reason they start happening more frequently is because Hebb's laws are bastard sometimes, right? And that makes what was an initial random one thought, because you have loads of random one thoughts. So there was a, so in obsessive compulsive disorder, there was a study back in the seventies that wanted to know, are obsessive thoughts different, fundamentally different in nature to non-obsessive thoughts, Right. So they got a bunch of people with OCD and a bunch of normal people, quote unquote, uh, to write down all the upsetting shit that jumps into their head across the course of a day. They then jumbled up all the answers and got the researchers to go, cool, pick the crazy thoughts. And you can't. They, you couldn't tell. There are no differences in the type of thought that someone has. That's not what's the distressing part. Mm-hmm. It's what does that thought mean to them? How emotionally distressing is it? How frequently do they have that thought? How long do they dwell on that thought for? They're all the bits that start happening. But the implication at the end of that is also that 
being better doesn't mean never having negative thoughts, right? Overcoming, let's say you, you gain a bunch of body weight. No one on God's green earth has never not been like, oh, I feel a bit fat sometimes, right? That, that is a <laughs> fundamentally normal thought that everyone has. And sometimes when you're coming out the backside of a prep, that thought and that feeling that goes along with it because again, we get a bigger feeling to it because of our value of being lean is enough to demand that we have to do something about it. And, oh my God, uh, if I'm, maybe I am actually a bit fat because I'm not even just thinking I'm fat. My scale weight is up a whole bunch. I can't seem to kind of stop eating. I'm supposed to be a PT. People are going to be like, PTs aren't supposed to do this. I'm secret eating. I feel just fucking guilty and ashamed of this. I'm, why can't I stop though? Right, tomorrow we get back. We're going to do uh, more cardio, right? I'm going to bring my calories down. That's going to be fine. I'm going to control this. And we try it and we try it and we try it and we're fighting ourselves this whole time. And there's this internal battle of like, but I keep thinking about food and maybe then I'm upset because I had an argument with my girlfriend or something else. Maybe I looked in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I don't look as good as I used to. And I put a post up and it didn't get the likes that it used to get when I was just that little bit leaner. And so, you know, maybe then I cave at some point. And whenever we're distressing, food, sex, drugs and rock and roll, the reason that they get used is they're all pleasurable. <laughs> they feel good. And when you feel shit, guess what's better? Not feeling shit. So we can use basically anything that makes us feel good temporarily to escape that. The problem comes when the escape is worse than the thing you were escaping from. Mm. And that it never happens in one instance. It's repeated behavior because every human being has used food at some point to celebrate, to feel good. And just for the pure pleasure of that food, that is normal. If you have to do it every single time you're suffering with some emotional distress or a particular thought pattern or whatever it is for you, you always have to use that. That becomes compulsive. That becomes a crutch. That's where we're starting to get into disordered territory where we have to soothe ourselves with the same mechanism every single time. Mm -hmm. And that can then become hyper problematic within that. So Hebb's law within this is going, okay, where along the path of all the possibilities, like some people emotionally eat and they eat when they're feeling lonely or they're feeling fat or they're feeling whatever. Some people emotion, so, uh, sorry, eat when they start thinking that, you know, they're a bit, well, maybe they think they're fat again in this instance, but they might also be thinking that, I'm a bit of a disgrace as a PT. No, oh, the people didn't like my kind of posts as much. My identity is being threatened. I don't know who I am. I just feel confused and whatever. And they eat in response to escape that. Some people do it because they're being stupid and they're leaving eight hours between meals, right? <laughs> right. And you're kind of going like, okay, so your hunger got really ramped up. There's an easy solution to that one, which is let's not go eight hours between meals. Cool, win, right? Some people in the post-show period might be putting in, they're really trying to fight the reality of their physiology they're not ready to give uh ready to give up being lean yet and so they're trying to do more cardio than they should they've not really put their calories up they're not really at maintenance or a bit of a surplus yet they're, they're really resistant to that and that one is really problematic because you're gonna lose and while trying to fight an inevitable loss you end up being more distressed for longer than if you simply accept that reality mm -hmm. and start engaging in the behaviors that as, as Alice discovered, you know, for what did you say? It was like two weeks ish, that it was at its height. Yep. I'm sure it lasted maybe a bit longer in other uh, senses. It, it, was, it was literally two weeks. 
Sweet. Like okay. Two weeks so one... of going balls deep. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that would have changed for him in, in those two weeks was his body fat stores. Like, you know, he would have gained a bunch of body fat during that. Now, it wouldn't have been night and day, right? It's not like suddenly he woke up as Shamu two weeks later, right? <laughs> but but I'm glad you guys got that reference and didn't just age myself, right? Uh, <laughs> but he would have gained some body fat. And things like, you, so your physiology is at play here. There's a hormone called leptin that's produced in your fat stores. And leptin is a big governor of our, well, it regulates a whole bunch of other hormones, but it, its primary function is to tell us how many, how much energy store have we got going on? And when our energy stores start getting really low, it downregulates things like your libido will fuck off. And once you get particularly low, your thyroid output starts downregulating. Your testosterone output comes down. Loads of things start coming down because essentially your body's going starving, right? Turns out fucking is less important than living. So we'll <laughs> let's lower these things to allow us to survive a little bit. Uh, and that doesn't come back until you actually gain a bunch more body fat so that leptin can come back up and start restoring a bunch of these other hormonal functions that are going on downstream from that. So that's one of those things where you're going to have to accept that part of the reality. Now, how much body fat an individual has to gain in order to get back there is up for a bit of debate. It's definitely going to be genetically influenced. It's definitely going to be different person to person a little bit. Um, But you you are going to have to. One of the reasons you can't stay shredded is physiology. I think the other big one is that you no longer have the handcuffs of a deadline. So when you're shredded, it's a bit like running when you're knackered. If you're going for a run or something, you start chunking things down and aiming at lampposts or trees or some shit like that. When you're really lean, you start aiming at the next, just make it to the next meal. We get to eat in 97 minutes time. Great. Right. And then sometimes you go to bed. I'm going to go to bed early because then it's breakfast. Right. Like those are pretty normal ish type things as you start getting really lean. Well, the the reason you're doing that is because there is a show or there's a shoot or there's this deadline. Well, now you've gone past the deadline. So in those moments when you're really hungry because the physiology hasn't repaired yet, the thing that kept you on the straight and narrow isn't there anymore. There's no handcuff. There's no, so you're just like, all right, we'll just do it this time. And then I'll get back to it tomorrow. Right. <laughs> and you, you believe that. You want to believe that desperately because of the identity stuff. But it's, it doesn't stop it being wrong. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, you've got that going on. I think one of the things that really worked for me is a lot of the stuff you're covering here is like addiction stuff. Like I'm resonating with it and yep. I'm just like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's, that's something that speaks to my heart. So it's like, uh, one of the things that really gets working for me is calling myself out on my own bullshit, mm-hmm. becoming aware of it and, and acknowledging those thought patterns and those processes and exactly and seeing it and observing it internally, if that makes sense. And that internal observation of like, oh, okay, this is a regular occurrence. Why? And then questioning and challenging your patterns of behavior based on that. That's something that obviously I've learned over the years of being able to do, which is kind of like the most beneficial thing for me. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting one that you kind of like picked up on. There. How easy do you find it now to catch yourself as you start to go down a path versus when you started? Pretty much instantly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's one of those that I give myself some leeway. Like I have to allow myself to accept that. Yeah. Okay. You know what? We've caught ourselves doing this, accept it. Mm. If I find myself not accepting it, okay, then I got a big fucking problem, but the quicker that I can allow acceptance for the problem, then that's when there's a solution. If that makes sense. When you fight that, that's when you've really got some shit going on. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Go for it. 
I was just going to say, like, that's kind of the premise behind the whole CBT process. And, like, I've, I'd actually highly recommend as well, like, the CBT workbook for dummies. That's great. The dummy series for most things are really good. Yeah, that's a fucking fantastic book. And I've read that back to front um, a couple of times. But, like, it's it's understanding and accepting the fact that, like, these thoughts will come into your head and, like, these things are going to happen. It's more so, like, right, what is your response? To, like, how can you remains mostly objective in your observation and your response to these things and um, rather than like trying to brush them to the side and like act as if those thoughts aren't there because like humans are actually like very fucking irrational you know what i mean like, these things are going to pop up regardless so we need to kind of just have some some capacity to like attenuate them you know what i mean it's like let's accept these things that do pop into our head and say okay now what do we do yeah, there's a thing that you're going to come across in different types of, there's many, it's known as different waves of CBT, the first wave, second wave, third wave. There's loads of different types, whether that's DBT, ACT. Psychology loves an acronym. This yeah. is one of the things you should discover about psychology. Cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment-based therapy. There's loads, right? They just love acronyms. They just can't get enough of them. Uh, is that one of the things that will come up with that is this idea of non-judgmental observation will come up in a whole bunch of different stuff that's part of acceptance so i always internally think of that as imagine part of you has a clipboard and is observing some kind of animal and is just there to make notes on what they're seeing like the the monkey today has picked up a banana with his left hand right you're trying to just put a bit of distance between. (laughs) (laughs) you're just trying to put a bit of distance between the what you're feeling and the fact that feelings they're not facts they're just almost suggestions on stuff. And thoughts also aren't facts. They're almost guesses, suggestions, ideas. And you don't have to act on all of them. And if you did act on all of them, you'd be a serial killer. Because <laughs> if you pay enough attention internally to yourself, you will have some thoughts sometimes that make you go, God, I'm glad people can't read minds. <laughs> because that is a deeply inappropriate thought that no one needs to know that I just had. Right. So if you can just start to notice that bit, it almost puts, there's a wonderful book written by a guy called Viktor Frankl. If you guys have ever read Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. And Viktor Frankl, if you know, it's a wonderful book if you haven't read it out. It's, uh, it, it's great. So Viktor Frankl, yeah, really, really short. It's, uh, so Viktor Frankl was an Austrian um, psychologist and neurologist, but also Auschwitz survivor. So you've got a really interesting combination of the theoretical knowledge of an academic and the experience of a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And so some of his conclusions and ideas and, and thoughts have been hyper influential in, in psychology. And they're also much harder to dismiss because it's easy. You know, I'm sat here in a nice room in the 21st century. Blah, 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 blah. So some of the ideas that you might start suggesting, you could easily go, well, that's easy for you to say. You can't say that's easy for you to say to someone who's been through Auschwitz. Uh, so it, I think it means more when you have that. But one of Frankel's fundamental ideas was that there was a gap between stimulus and response. So this thing that happens and all the thoughts and things you do after. And being human means we're self-aware. We have this capacity to think that other species don't seem to have to quite to the same degree. But he said that in that gap lies our freedom. In that gap lies our opportunity to choose to do something else. And one of the things he was insistent upon that I, I really believe is that human beings can have everything taken away from them except for one thing. And that one thing is the ability to choose your response to the situation you're in. Important. And that, yeah. And that, now that 
again, if you're in Auschwitz, that choice might mean death. The choice might mean dying with whatever dignity you have left or changing and, and doing whatever. And, you know, God only knows how I would respond or how we would all respond in, in such a situation. We all like to paint ourselves as the hero, right, in our own internal dialogue. But you, you don't know yourself until you've experienced a situation or something very similar. So who knows how you would actually behave? But it, it means something when someone who went through Auschwitz starts insisting that you can never take away someone's capacity to choose more than if I just insist upon that. It's very easy for me to say, I'm sat, there's a nice Dyson fan near me. I'm a nice cool temperature, got to go to the gym, get to go on holiday next week. Yeah, guys, you can choose your response whenever <laughs> to someone in a bad place. That's like, fuck off, Paul. <laughs> right, but if you hear that from, from Viktor Frankl in the midst of Auschwitz, where all of his family, his wife died, er, like everything you could possibly imagine and possibly more uh, was, was taken from him. And to insist that, in spite of that, at the end, means means something. Um, and so, yeah, Frankel's idea was we always have a choice in a moment, but that's only true if we can get in that gap of stimulus and response. If we can be, as, as Alex said, if we can notice and catch ourselves, yeah. because in that moment, we can then go, oh, okay, what am I doing? We go back to our observation monkey, right? And then we go, okay, do I want to interact with this? If I do want to interact with it, am I going to challenge it? Does it, am I going to try and change the way I actually see this situation? Do I want to ignore it? Sometimes mm-hmm. I might want to ignore it. Sometimes half your thoughts start behaving like a two-year-old screaming bastard toddler. And the best thing you can do if you want that toddler to shut the fuck up long-term is to ignore it rather than keep engaging with it. Sometimes if something is dominating your attention, you don't reduce its attention by giving it more attention. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the best thing you can do is notice and ignore. You should know, though, what happens when you start ignoring a screaming toddler initially. those fuckers get louder right (laughs) and so it's because that that has worked for them in the past when they've screamed and demanded your attention you've paid them attention you've given into some of these thoughts and you've behaved in in that previous manner and if you've decided okay i need to do something different with this now often those fears get louder those emotions get stronger and that's that's really hard to ride that wave so that the toddler learns to shut the fuck up, right? And starts behaving like a nice child rather than that asshole. Because it's okay when a toddler's a bit of a dick, right? But no one likes that 10-year-old who's still behaving like a toddler. And if you're 20 and still behaving like a toddler, you're in trouble, right? No one's going to be your friend. One of the ways that I found that works really well for that is when you're getting really random, irrational thoughts is by observing it, but writing it down yeah. and then just discounting it. If that yeah. makes sense. So it's like by that discounting and accept, acknowledging it, write it down. Good, good story. Because it is a story. It's hmm. not true. It's yep. just your story in your mind. And then write that down. And then if you need to journal, whatever it is, based off that, crack on. But then it's not actually paying attention to that particular thought. You're just getting your thoughts down onto paper. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's even things within just the act of labeling. And you could think yeah. of this, if you're into sciencey stuff, of what does that mean? Well, if... Your life experience right now is a consequence of your brain activity, which to some degree it has to be, right? This present moment, all the things that make up me and my current conscious awareness and unconscious awareness of everything that's going on is whatever's going on in this dome of mine. And I have no idea what's going on in this dome of mine, but whatever it is that's going on at this moment, that is making me, me in this present moment, this present moment for me. Well, when I label something, there's a different part of the brain that has to be engaged when I start using verbal language and talking and labeling than the parts of my brain that are responsible purely for just the emotional reaction that I'm having. And if 
Therefore, the act of saying it out loud to myself or writing it down, doing something, that means I have to fire up different parts of my brain. And if I fire up different parts of my brain, that means my reality has just fundamentally changed a bit. Hmm. And so you can actually take advantage of these bits. It's weirdly effective for a lot of people just to notice themselves and name, I am feeling, uh, (laughs) or to write that thing down. Here's my thought. Cool. It's, it is unreasonably cathartic, <laughs> right? But for as simple as that sounds, now that doesn't mean it solves everything in and of itself. It doesn't. But it might be enough to take that emotion that you're feeling eight out of 10 and bring it down to a six. And suddenly that six is a bit more manageable. And so you might then, after having done that, be able to start ignoring it a little bit. Because when that kid is screaming, 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 and you're out and there's people looking, you're like, I'm going to have to give in to this toddler. This is too embarrassing. This is too difficult, right? But if we can, for whatever reason, quieten him down a little bit, we put him in a little bubble, we put some earplugs in, whatever, right? The act of labeling or writing it down just diminishes him a little bit. Sometimes by just doing that, we can then stay the course that we need to do to reinforce these different pathways, Heb's law, so that we can get out of the shit situation that we're, we're currently in. So yeah, absolutely. That What Alex said there is super useful and a, a really well-established psychological thing as well. It's cool to hear that it works for you. Yeah. I think as well, even just the opportunities, the circumstance for people to actually realize what their thoughts are, because I think that a lot of people will mislabel thoughts, and that's another thing that's highlighted in the CBT stuff, where right? you have a list of right, most commonly cited emotions, then you'll have like a drop-down list of like other synonyms, but they may be contextually slightly different. So it's like, right, maybe you weren't actually feeling angry, you were feeling like there might be a synonym that actually kind of clicks with you a little bit more. And you can kind of then with that other adjective, you can then actually potentially reverse engineer and see like right, where's that actually sound from? And then again you're coming towards the, the head of the problem more more accurately. And you're not trying to jump the corner and say, oh I'm I'm feeling like this way because it's very like emotionally driven. Yeah. Some people have no idea why they think things or why they feel things. And it can be, again, unrealistically, uh, unreasonably effective to start to just understand yourself and to try and pass those things apart of going, what am I actually feeling? What am I actually thinking? And CBT or therapy in general can be super useful in helping you understand yourself. And because once you, until you understand yourself, What are you supposed to do? There's a wonderful Carl Jung line, which is that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's so often the case that those things we just, that's just the way I am. That's just what I'm like. It's like, oh, maybe, right? But you don't know what you could be like and you could change. Like, because that can't be a justification for every shit thing that you are, (laughs) right? Some of you should grow and and change. And even if it's for your own sake, because you keep self-sabotaging or whatever it is that you're kind of doing, until we make that unconscious process conscious and become aware of it, how do we know what to do? We're sort of blindly pinning the tail on the donkey and we don't even know where the donkey is, right? You're just sort of hoping, right? (laughs) We have to become aware. It'd be no different than being in the gym and going like, what exercise should I do for? uh?" Like every good solution starts with an appropriate diagnosis of the issue. And the diagnosis of the issue, if if the issue is you and your own brain, and I don't mean that like condescendingly or dismissively, because I went through a load of therapy and, and what have you for these bits and pieces. And but until you become aware, you almost just don't know where to start. And often 
things like a thought diary and doing some journaling suddenly start, you see these patterns in it and you go, oh, <laughs> and that really, that can really start to narrow down the list of solutions to a few rather than like a million. And actually that, that even by itself is quite reassuring. I don't know if you guys kind of found something similar to that. Literally putting pen to paper. Yeah. Like just it, it, analysis, uh, like same as you would do with like a competitive physique athlete. It's like you see them, you see what the issue is, or or what they're potentially lacking, and it's like right now that we know what the problem is, we're going to tailor this. We're going to have this set up in a way that's going to be beneficial towards them. Like you're not going to have like a fucking men's physique athlete and bikini girl doing the same training program. You know, what I mean? because there's different criteria, and then obviously based on how they are relative to that criteria when they come to you is how you'll then adjust the plan at Sephiroth. So it's the exact same approach, like nervy and, and psychologically, it's it's just seeing what that issue is, how it, pre- how it presents itself, and then what's the most kind of feasible way for you to kind of lay down a constructive pathwork and framework towards like improvement. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it. Like we did, we were planning on keeping all these podcasts like half an hour, 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that I bought the the license for for Zoom this morning because I was just running off, off the free one for 40 minutes and said, right, Paul, come on, you may as well get this just in case. Um, there you but, go. I have a tendency to talk too much, so yeah, apologies. I made Dara spend some money. <laughs> uh, money, money well spent. I was actually thinking last night, like it's on a Thursday evening, I was like, ah, miss having little chats with Paul and Muslim others. <laughs> No, mate, honestly, it's been brilliant having you on. Um, I think we kind of drop it there. If there's anything else that we've missed in terms of, or just a kind of brief summation? Just listen. Like a brief summation. Listen again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a podcast. You can just rewind, go back over those. Over those <laughs> but no, I, like, thanks for having me on, boys. It's been uh, it's been a really nice discussion and chat. And thanks for being for having me on as the first guest. I feel deeply honoured now. Yeah, you yeah. can't tell, but I've got an erection under here. So <laughs> you set the standard really high now. I, don't know. <laughs> I think we might just wrap it up here, like this is the last episode. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Um, I'll put Paul's links in the description below. Um, and please reach out to him. Please buy his books, do his workshops. And yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for listening. Take care.